Samuel. Start, uh, open your Bibles rather to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. Um, Lord willing, we are going to look at uh, a chapter and a half. So, uh, page 289 of your pew Bibles, 2 Samuel 17. Um, if you remember, what we said is really between chapters 15 to 19, chapter 16, 19, depending on how you break it down, is really one broad narrative. But we are at the point where it's war. So you men, you're welcome. We're getting to the part where we're, where we're fighting and, and going to war. So finally, uh, we, we are getting to, to the good action part. So with that, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's word, what I think we'll do is we'll just read the first four, four verses to introduce the narrative, but we want to go all the way through chapter 18, verse 8. So the writer of 2 Samuel writes on their inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. And I will come to him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. Um, And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask every time we gather together, you would open our entire being, that we would be transformed through your word, by the gospel, for the glory of Christ. So may your spirit come, may we be transformed, and may you be glorified in all that we are and all that we do. May you be pleased with, um, uh, with what we do here today. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. See you then. Well, many of you all know that uh, I love uh, uh, presidential bloopers, but my favorite one is, of course, George W. Bush, right? And uh, I've shared some of those with you, but this one isn't really a blooper, but it really reflects who W. was in his essence. Uh, 21 years ago was, was 9-11, of course, and... Um, and uh, shortly thereafter, uh, when, when it became apparent that Osama bin Laden was the one behind the terrorist attacks on that terrible day, uh, W was asked, what is the plan moving forward to getting uh, bin Laden? And he, he, he really turned on the Texas draw, you know, he's like, well, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, uh, back in Texas, there's, there's a sign that says, wanted, dead or alive. Right? I love that. I love that. You may think it's bad policy, but if any other president said that, would not have had the right sort of sting to it, right? Because, you know, he's an old Texas boy. And I remember growing up in a small town, we all thought what we need is not the CIA or the American government to go get bid line. What we need is a couple of rednecks with open season, right? We'd get them, right? And that was sort of Debbie's thing. Well, of course, we eventually did get Bin Laden. Uh, I believe it was in 2012, 2013. You can correct me on, on some of those dates. And, uh, of course, it was with a SEAL Team 6 uh, after the CIA and other uh, entities found where they uh, had good reason to believe Bin Laden was there. SEAL Team 6 went in, uh, almost uh, had a disaster with a helicopter going down, was able to uh, execute Bin Laden, assassinate him, where they buried him at sea. Now, to Americans, that sort of warfare is really something we're uncomfortable with. The idea that you could end a movement by simply removing its leader. Yet throughout history, that has been the way much warfare has been fought. After all, executing Jesus, the assumption would have been the movement itself would have ceased to operate. 
What we have here in this warfare, it begins with an effort on behalf or on the part of Absalom to to end the civil war quickly by assassinating David. And remember, David is his own father. So let's start here with the council, verses 1 through 14. And uh, as you may know, one of the most important things and duties that a new king has, particularly in the ancient world, was to eliminate any threat that king may have to their throne, especially if someone else in the realm has a greater, more legal uh, right to the throne. Right? You have to get rid of them. You can expel them. You can exile them. You can assassinate them. Whatever it might be, uh, no king wants to have their throne taken from them. Back in the uh, uh, prior, right around the age of the Tudors, when the Tudors came, Richard III took the throne of England as what he was called Lord Protector. His brother had died prematurely, and his brother's son, Edward IV, was too young. And so the Lord Protector, Richard III, took uh, over government. Well, as typically what happens, Richard III quite enjoyed being the, uh, the place of the king. And when it came time to uh, 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 crown his nephew king, he didn't want to crown his nephew king. So the story goes that he put both his nephews who had claim on the throne into prison. And we don't know exactly what all happened. All we know is Richard III became king. Those two boys likely were executed. And before long, Henry VII, the first of the Tudors, took over. This is typical of history. If you are a king, you want to eliminate any threat that you have. And so the first bit of advice we get in the council comes from what we see as one of the wiser men who has an axe to grind against David. But his suggestion, verses 1 to 4, what we read, was it really is the best strategy. Had Absalom followed this, Absalom likely would have won the civil war. Uh, and would have won it quite quickly. His, his counsel is, don't get a big army. Get a small group of men. We'll call them still Team Six, okay? And you're going to go in. You're going to find David. You're going to eliminate David. And don't worry. Everyone loyal to David will now become loyal to you. We don't need a lot of bloodshed. We don't need a, a big protracted war. Just get rid of David. It is quick. It is easy. And it will be over with. Well, everyone else is looking around thinking, well, that, that sounds smart. After all, remember, Ahithophel, who he himself wants to lead the army, Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. So he likely wants to see David suffer, and he is David's traitor. But before Absalom makes his decision, he, he goes to talk to one of his other advisors, a guy by the name of Hushai. Now, we've met Hushai before. Remember, Hushai is loyal to David, but David uh, told Hushai to, to join the uh, Absalom's uh, administration as a spy. So we heard the good advice of the traitor. We heard the bad advice, at least for Absalom's sake, uh, from the spy. And Hushai looks at this and he says, well, that all sounds good, but this isn't going to work. After all, Hushai says, I know David better than anyone here. I know his military mind. And I'm going to tell you that Ahithophel's plan sounds good on paper, but it won't work. Rather, what you need to do is not to send in a small regiment of, of SEAL Team 6. What you need to do is you need to get the largest army you can assemble and go all out against David. Kill every single one of them. Uh, go, go have war against your father. Now, the way he does this is he preys on Absalom's pride. 
If you go back to those first four verses, Ahithophel says, I will round up the, the men to, to this mission. I will lead them, and I will bring back to you the lifeless body of David, right? He, it's all about what Ahithophel is going to do. Hushai comes and says, no, 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 no. Absalom, you should raise up the army. You should lead them. You should win this battle so that you can get all the glory. Well, what king's going to turn now that opportunity to, to get all the glory? And so uh, what you essentially get is, uh, uh, is Absalom likes Ahithophel's idea, but he believes Hushai's plan is the best. So we'll go down to verse 14 again. We've we got to do a lot of skipping uh, today due to, to the amount of text. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So that's the counsel. Let's look briefly at the conspiracy, verses 15 to 23. Whenever Absalom makes his decision... Uh, Hushai leaves the, uh, the, the war room and he immediately sets things into action. Remember, David has set up a spy ring inside Absalom's administration. You've got Hushai who is uh, on the war council. You've got two high priests, Zadok and Abiathar, who, who then have their connections of messengers. And so once you get uh, Hushai and the priests all sorted together, uh, they then inform the messengers who, who go on the Pony Express and they they send a telegraph over to David, and they, and they tell David, you need to prepare for war. Now, if you're interested in this, and hopefully you are because it is the Bible, verses 16 to 20 is quite fascinating. It reads a lot like the Hebrew spies going into Jericho. There is a woman who, who, who hides the spies so that through the spies, God might bring the victory. You can read that on your own time. We just don't have uh, we're not really able to do that here. So in verses 21 to 23, they, they find David, they alert him to what is happening, and they report that Absalom is coming. However, I want you to note this going down to verse 23. The first cad uh, casualty of this war is Ahithophel, the one who gave the advice about sinning in Seal Team 6. Verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. You didn't see that one coming, did you? It reads as if his feelings got hurt. Therefore, he responded with suicide. Probably what you have here is Ahithophel knows David as well as Hushai, and he knows Absalom's kingdom is about to crash and David's about to return. There's no way David's going to lose this war. David wants an all-out war. What he doesn't want is warriors in the night sneaking in. So before he is punished by the returning king, he, go ahead, he goes ahead and takes his own life. But let us look finally at the clash. Chapter 17, verse 24 going into chapter 18, verse 18. Here we see the battle commencing. In verses 27 to 29, uh, on David's side are a few men we don't really know uh, all that much about. You can read their names, and if as you read them, will you record it and send it to me? I'd like to see how you 
uh, say these names, okay? Been teasing me. Yeah, I can pronounce Ahithophel fine during the week. I get up here with y'all and suddenly my stuttering habit comes back. Ahithophel. But nevertheless, Absalom, on the other hand, has a man by the name of Amasa with him, okay? Now, now with David is a guy named Joab. We've met him before. He's loyal to David. Absalom has a guy leading him named Amasa. Now, this is important because, and these names will be on your quiz at the end, Joab and Amasa are uncle and nephew. So think about what this civil war is pitting against. Father against son, uncle against nephew, cousin against cousin, citizen against citizen. I I do think it's worth pausing to consider just really how evil war is. I I do believe in just war theory as developed by Augustine, Anselm, and and, and Aquinas. At the same time, we've got to realize war is not good. It's not good. Civil war is particularly heinous, separating families, close relationships, communities. And you have this here. I mean, the son has waged war against his father, kingdom against kingdom, uncle against nephew, and so on and so forth. Well, when you come to chapter 18, the war actually happens. Okay, So all that is built up to the war. The armies have assembled. We have a war. What David does is he divides his army of only 10,000 men into three groups. Now, remember, Absalom got a large army with him. He went throughout all the 12 tribes and he brought them all together. Now, the reason Hushai recommended that is because he knows David is a better general and and wartime general at that. He also knows David needs time. So a swift action from Absalom would would have ruined any chance David had. But to gather an army like this ancient Near Eastern world would have taken a long time to to, to build. I mean, if you read history enough, you'll find it could take years to assemble an army to to start a campaign because you have to finance it. You you have to do everything necessary. So while Absalom is assembling his army, David is preparing. And now David has his his place and Absalom's coming to him. So David takes his 10,000 men, Absalom has significantly more. He divides them into three groups. And we know the, the army here. The first is led by Joab. We, we, we talked about him. The other is led by a man by the name of Abishai. The third is led by a man of Ittai. Now, again, these names will be on your quiz. You have to spell them and pronounce them correctly. Now, I mentioned those names because Ittai, you may remember from chapter, I believe it was 15 or 16, where when David was leaving, he was fleeing from Jerusalem, Ittai had worked with David for one whole day. And David says, Ittai, well, why don't you just stay here with Absalom? You're brand new here. You're in exile. Like, if you go with me, you know, I can't promise your safety. And Ittai was loyal to David, one of the few people loyal to him. Now, however, he has a chance to lead a third of David's army in this civil war. So the war commences. It's fought in verses 6 and 8 between David's forces and Absalom's larger army. And what you get in verse 7 is victory for David. Let's let's read verses 6 and 7. So the army went out into the field, this is chapter 18, against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. Again, pause. Was it really necessary that 20,000 men should die? Up to 20,000 women were widowed because of the actions of these men. You can read the story and and you, you can see, had David done better here? 
had absolutely responded differently here, these men would not have died prematurely. I mean, however you put war, it should always be seen as a tragedy. Where men kill men, often for vanity and hatred. So David wins this battle, essentially winning the war, and it allows him to march towards uh, Jerusalem. We'll see that in the, in the coming weeks. But we mentioned the first casualty of this war was Ahithophel. The last casualty of this war is Absalom. And in between there, 20,000 men die. And we see the story of Absalom's death in chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Why don't we read that? Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, and Absalom was riding on his mule. Mules here, we, we see them as, you know, like Shrek's friend, right, the donkey. Um, but, but mules back then were royal animals, okay? We, we see uh, kings throughout the Old Testament, the judges in the Old Testament ride on mules. Uh, David, or not, yes, David does, but Jesus himself rides on the donkey, right? Now it's, it's a slapstick comedy character uh, voiced by Eddie Murphy, okay? That's what we've done with donkeys now. Um, nevertheless... Uh, he's on his mule, uh, and he uh, went under the thick branches of a great oak. Remember, th- the fight was in the middle of this forest area. His head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. So you remember, Absalom, one of the things that attracted him was he had long hair. Now, that was probably due to a Nazarite vow he had made. And we, we, you can go back and see our study on all that before. But the text made it clear his hair was something that st- made him stand out among all the other candidates. And it's interesting. What made people think he looked like a king is what ruins his kingdom. He gets caught by his hair in the trees, which I would think would hurt. Remember that, men. Cut your hair, right? Right, right moms, right? I, some of you guys grew up in the 60s. It wasn't cute then, okay? It wasn't, all right? Just stop with that. Cut your hair, all right? I don't know. That, I'm just joking with you. Um, but talk to your mother about it before you grow it out. Verse, verse 10, a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, what, you saw, what, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? Remember, the original plan was to do this to David from Absalom. I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. The man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. David didn't fight. We skipped that part because he, he couldn't bear the thought of killing his own son. On the other hand, verse 13 if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. He took three javelins in his hand, thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And 10 young men, Joab's arm bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Now, this certain young man remembers his history. You remember what David did when he took the throne to begin with and someone killed King Saul's son? Remember what David did? He killed him himself. And you remember that the last remaining of Saul's sons was still around and we met him, Mephibosheth, last week I believe it was. David did not strike down the last remaining threat to his throne 
Rather, he went out of his way to restore his wealth and land of his father and to welcome him into his palace. So, so here, this certain young man is like, I, I remember my history. And I, I heard, you heard what David said, don't kill Absalom. Whatever you do, don't kill Absalom. Well, Joab won't, won't hear any of this because he thinks he's honoring the king by disobeying the king. And so he goes and executes the son of his lord. So he assassinates him. That means the war was over and David's men are victorious. And so in verse 16 to 18, Joab orders his men to cease pursuing the fleeing soldiers of Absalom. And then they then turn to execute, uh, or rather to bury the execute king in verses 16 to 18. So what we have then are two military leaders, political leaders, Absalom and Ahithophel, dead in the revolt. And we have 20,000 Hebrews killed in battle. We'll pick up to see where, what happens, how David responds next week. But for the time that remains, I think there are two things that the writer of this text wants us to see this morning. The first, and it is significant considering today's anniversary, the first is the Lord is sovereign over the nations. The Lord is sovereign over the nations. If you will, go back. We read it earlier. Chapter 17, uh, verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Remember, Ahithophel said, go in, strike, and we're done. Hushai says, well, hold up. We should take the long route so that Absalom can get all the glory, right? He's the spy. So they go with Hushai. Here it is, the end of verse 14. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. You see what the writer is telling us there? Who's really fighting this battle? Who's really defeating Absalom? Who really wins this war? Is it Hushai? Is it David? Is it Ittai? Is it Abishai? Is it the soldiers? Is it the the former king, David? Who, who is it here that gets all the credit? Now, this entire Civil War narrative calls into questioning David's anointing by God as king. Yes, he was guilty of egregious sin. Yes, he deserved the wrath of God. Yes, his decisions as a father call into question his legitimacy as king. That is Absalom's point. Yet, David remained God's anointed king over Israel, whose throne he had promised would know no end. Now, we should note here, if God only chose the righteous to do his bidding, he would choose none of us. That's been the hard part for me with David, is because I don't like David anymore, right? I mean, you really, look at all the bad stuff he's done. Yet, as with God as Lord over the nations, he raises leaders and he tears down leaders. Here, he has anointed David as his servant and he calls on David to be humble and faithful to him. And so Absalom comes and seeks to thwart the will and the work 
of God. And although David can't see it as he's fleeing from Jerusalem and people are throwing stones at him and cursing him and saying all kinds of nasty things about him, people are betraying him and there's traitors in his midst and he has to leave the camp like Adam go east of the garden or the city of peace. He leaves, he may wonder, has God abandoned me? Has God forsaken me? And here we see it was God moving the pieces to preserve David's reign. Psalm 33, 10, 11 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Now, this is significant. We are confronted here with the sovereign care of God over the nations. Again, 21 years ago, we were faced with this question. What in the world is going on? And the last 21 years have just been a continued mess, haven't they, in many ways? Why? Because the world is a mess. How important is it to know, not that we understand everything that is happening, but God is Lord over the nations, including our very own. And that God, in the end, will receive all the glory from the cosmos and the nations itself. You can only rest at night in the firm faith that God is sovereign over the unseen realm and the seen realm, nations and individuals alike. God is in complete control. So when chaos seems the rule, trust in God's sovereign providential care. When we doubt our salvation, trust in the assurance of his promises. David learned that lesson. When confronted with our sin, trust in his love and mercy from a good sovereign God. Here we see his lordship over the nations and human affairs. The second thing we see here is that the man who hangs from the tree is cursed. Deuteronomy 21 tells us this. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree. You shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Now, I want you to notice what happens here. The war is bookmarked between two deaths, both upon a tree. Ahithophel hangs himself uh, near his home. And what happens, we, we find there in 1723, he is immediately buried in accordance to Deuteronomy 21. He is cursed. You read here in chapter 18, and particularly verses 16 to 18, what happens to, 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 to Absalom? He gets caught in a tree. He is literally hanging from a tree. And what happens? There he is executed. Therefore, he is cursed of God. And what did they do? Verse 16 to 18, they immediately bury him. Why? Because you don't want to defile the land. Clearly, the writer wants us to see this. He wants us to see these two men are cursed. If you want to see it for yourself, you don't have to. We just, we're just short on time. We could do something similar in Matthew chapter 27. In Matthew 27, what, what the gospel writer is doing is he's juxtaposing a number of things. We don't have time to get into all of them. One of them is he is juxtaposing two approaches to repentance. Because you have Peter denying Jesus, who then responds with grief and repentance, and he goes off towards Christ. Judas, the betrayer, responds not with repentance, but sorrow. 
and he hangs himself from a tree. So that's one man from a tree, a juxtaposition of repentance. But what Matthew also does is he has a juxtaposition of death. Judas upon a tree. Jesus upon a tree. In fact, when you read the New Testament, you'll find, particularly in the book of Acts, the word for cross that we have in our English Bibles, and rightly so, is is often the Greek word for tree. Let me give you a few examples. This is free. Acts 5.30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you uh, slain upon a tree. Acts 10.39. We are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and Jerusalem, whom they slain and hanged on a tree. Same thing in Acts 13.29, Galatians 3 and 1 Peter 2. Why is that so important to the New Testament writers to say not just Jesus died upon a cross, but that he was crucified upon a tree? So what Matthew does is he says, here is one who is cursed. Oh, and here is another one who is cursed of God. What's the difference? The difference is, on the one hand, the guilty man dies because he betrayed the innocent as Judas. The other is to see the innocent man dies because he loves the guilty. Paul makes this point in Galatians 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse himself. For it is written, cursed is every man who hangs from a tree. You see the gospel message here? Yes, it's about war. It's about strategy. It's about David's anointing. It's about God's grace and sovereignty and all this sort of stuff. At the end of the day, we are to see the one who hangs from a tree is cursed. And that makes sense with Ahithophel and Absalom. One who, 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 who led a revolt against the king. The other who, who, who is a traitor to his king. But ultimately we must see that Christ hung from the tree so that rather than we become the curse of God through our sin and our wickedness and our brokenness, all that is laying upon the Son of God himself, the Son of David. He becomes a curse, Paul tells us, so that we don't have to. Christ, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree, Peter writes, so that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. By his stripes we are healed. That's the point of the text. Christ became a curse so that we can become free. Let's pray.